podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On June 9th, 2008, friends of a 30-year-old insurance salesman named Travis Alexander had grown concerned. For five days, their calls, voicemails, and text messages had gone unanswered. When Travis skipped an important work conference call, it was the last straw. Four of his friends decided to check in on him. They drove to his 3,000-plus square foot house in an upscale Mesa, Arizona neighborhood and entered using the garage code. Inside, they found Travis's roommate, groggy and confused. He also had not seen Travis in several days. In fact, he thought Travis was in Mexico on a work trip. In the downstairs office of the home, they found Travis's keys and wallet. The friend sent him upstairs to Travis's bedroom to see what else he could find. And what he discovered prompted an immediate call to 911. Travis Alexander's ex-girlfriend was a 28-year-old California woman named Jody Arias. To describe their relationship as tumultuous would be an understatement, and Travis's friends offered up Jody's name as the prime suspect in his murder. As it turned out, police wouldn't have to look very hard to find her. Jody called the police and offered her help the day his body was found. This is the story of Jody Arias and the murder of Travis Alexander. Jody Ann Arias was born on July 9th, 1980 in Salinas, California to Bill and Sandy Arias the second of five children. 
Jody earned a reputation for sweetness early on. Most of the people who knew her used sweet as the primary descriptor for Jody. Jody's parents owned and operated a diner-style restaurant and earned a decent living to support their large family. By Jody's own admission, however, at age seven, her parents began to show stress and strain. They began using corporal punishment to discipline their kids. Her father, Bill, used a belt to beat the children when they offended, and her mother, Sandy, used a wooden spoon. Jody's father developed health problems shortly after her 15th birthday, and the family decided to move to the tiny town of Wairika, California, to be closer to extended relatives. The move deeply affected young Jody. Just over 7,000 people called Wairika home in the year 2000, as Jody started her sophomore year at Wairika High School. She quickly realized that she was the outsider looking in. She had trouble making friends with kids who had known each other since childhood, and loneliness drove her to look for outside sources to dull her pain. Soon after they moved to Wairika, Jody's parents divorced. She was growing pot, weed, marijuana, the devil's lettuce, whatever you want to call it, and called the sheriff's office to report her. This incident ruined the trust Jody had in her parents, and their relationship was never the same afterward. Along with the pot, Jody rebelled in other ways. She dropped out of high school before her senior year and started working as a server, you know, a waitress. She met a boy named Bobby Juarez, who lived in a trailer without electricity or running water and moved in with him. According to high school friends of Jody's, Jody worked to support Bobby and he treated her like a servant. He offered her glimpses of affection and just enough attention so she would stick around and keep doing his laundry. It wasn't until she found out he had cheated on her that she finally ended things with Bobby after over a year of putting up with his behavior. With this first relationship, she developed a pattern of behavior that would play out over and over again in future romantic attachments. Jody developed a habit of altering herself to make her man happy. Her hair, her manner of dress, her job, her religion, it didn't matter. Jody adapted to the lifestyle of the person she was with. And this is very clear with her next boyfriend, Daryl Brewer. Daryl Brewer was a 40-year-old restaurant manager in the process of getting a divorce. He had a young child and a drinking problem that took up most of his time. Presumably, he met Jody in the restaurant industry and they started dating. Within months of going together, Jody dyed her brown hair platinum blonde, just like Brewer's soon-to-be ex-wife. Together, the couple bought a house, and the financial strain of the move had Jody looking for other opportunities outside of waitressing. While waiting tables at California Pizza Kitchen, 
She was shown a promotional video for prepaid legal, and it changed everything for Jody. Prepaid Legal Services, known as Legal Shield, provides legal services to customers for a monthly subscription fee. Started back in the early 70s, the founder, Harland Stonecipher, came up with the idea for the company after being in a car accident that resulted in a court case. Frustrated by high legal costs to defend himself in a situation that was not his fault, he figured others might be experiencing the same thing. Per Legal Shield's Facebook page, with their services, quote, Finally, you can live life knowing you have a lawyer in your back pocket who, at the same time, isn't emptying it. Unquote. Prepaid legal has taken criticism over the years for its multi-level marketing strategy. Similar to companies like Amway, Mary Kay, and LuluRoe. Essentially, sales associates purchase their own training materials, inventory, etc and the associates who recruit them receive a commission when they enter the organization. It seems recruitment rather than legal plan sales were the main income for prepaid legal sales associates back when Jody joined the organization. Another name for this type of business strategy is a pyramid scheme. Jody paid $250 in 2006 to join prepaid legal. And with that, she was in. By September, she was en route to prepaid legal conference in Las Vegas, Nevada, and it was at this seminar that her life would change forever. As a newbie in the organization, Jody attended the Las Vegas conference with little influence or standing. She was there to learn and absorb. However, she quickly caught the eye of a prepaid legal star Travis Alexander. Suave, charismatic, and alluring. Travis was a good-looking guy with a lot of ambition. Jody was beautiful. She had long blonde hair, a petite figure, magnetic eyes, and most of all, she was eager to please. When the pair met, when the pair met, their attraction was instantaneous. Travis invited Jody to a Crown Jewel prepaid legal event, the executive dinner. This was a major score for Jody, who had been with the prepaid legal for less than a few months. Despite his confident exterior and his knack for entrepreneurship, Travis Alexander's life began with a whimper not a bang. He was born on July 28, 1977, in Southern California to parents embattled with drug addictions. On his blog called Travis Alexander's Being Better blog, he wrote about his childhood. Quote, When you sleep for four days in a house full of kids, there isn't any food cooked. We would eat what was there, but before long, what was edible would be eaten or rot, and then what was rotten would be eaten too. Around the age of 10, 
Travis and his siblings went to live with their grandmother, a devout Mormon. The change in living circumstances changed everything for Travis. He threw himself into religion, and Mormonism became a pillar of his life. Friends of Travis reported that he and Jody were captivated by each other throughout the Las Vegas convention dinner. And afterwards, they stayed up talking until 4 o'clock in the morning. Sky Lovinger Hughes, a friend of Travis's, who has since written a book about him, said the morning after, Travis told her that he found the woman he was going to marry. There were obstacles to overcome before the relationship could advance, however. For one, Jody was still in a relationship with Daryl Brewer when she met Travis, though that romance was nearing its natural end. Jody realized she wanted marriage and kids, and Brewer wasn't interested in going down that path again, at least not with Jody. The pair limped along for a few more months before the relationship fizzled out by the end of 2006. The main stumbling block for Travis and Jody was the fact that she wasn't a Mormon, which meant if Travis were going to be serious about her, she would have to convert. Travis started sending missionaries to Jody's home in the weeks following the September convention. The Mormon missionaries and church associates who knew Jody during this time described her as enthusiastic and passionate about the gospel. She held Bible studies at her home and immersed herself in the church teachings. They determined by the end of November that she was worthy of baptism in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On November 26th, 2006, Travis Alexander and Jody Arias both donned plain white clothing and entered into the pool of baptism at the Mormon Church in Southern California. Travis performed the baptismal rites, submerged Jody's head beneath the water, and it was done. Jody had converted to Mormonism. After the baptism, the relationship quickly took off. Despite being long distance, Jody continued to live in California, and Travis stayed in Mesa, Arizona. The pair often met halfway in between their stomping grounds for weekend getaways at Skye and Chris's house, two close friends of Travis. Both adventurous and vibrant, Jody and Travis set out on a series of trips throughout the southwestern United States. They documented their relationship with photos on their personal blogs and social media. According to court documents, they exchanged over 82,000 emails during the course of their relationship. ABC News published an email excerpt from Travis to Sky Hughes a few weeks into his and Jody's relationship where he describes intense feelings for Jody. Quote, I went from being intrigued by her, to interested in her, to caring about her deeply, to realizing how lucky I would be to have her as part of my life forever. She is amazing. It is not hard to see that whoever scores Jody 
whether it be me or someone else, is going to win the wife lotto, unquote. From the outside, at least initially, Travis and Jody seemed destined for a lifetime of happiness. Inside the relationship, however, Travis was struggling with his moral compass. Chasteness in the Mormon church reigned supreme. Sex is supposed to be reserved for your spouse only. However, Travis and Jody began having premarital sex within weeks of the beginning of their relationship. Though Travis had always had a reputation for sleeping around, he expected to marry a virgin. By sleeping with him, Jody threw a wrench in the future of their relationship. It didn't mean they were any less crazy about each other, but the relationship was doomed to fail because Travis was determined to marry a good Mormon girl, and that meant someone pure, which Jody was certainly not. But within about four or five months of their relationship, friends of Travis began feeling alarmed over Jody's behavior toward him. They noticed she started acting possessively. She didn't like it when he spoke to other women. Sky Hughes said later in an interview that she saw Jody forwarding emails from Travis's phone to her own so she could read them. Friends noticed Jody would follow Travis to the bathroom and listen behind closed doors. At parties and gatherings, she always had to be next to him, touching him. There was an incident in a hot tub with a bunch of friends when Jody was climbing on him while he was trying to have a conversation. Travis, however, seemed oblivious to Jody's increasingly alarming behavior until June of 2007. During a weekend stay with Skye and Chris Hughes, the couple decided to talk to Travis one night after everyone went to bed. Skye described Travis sitting on her bed while she conveyed her concern over Jody's possessive behavior. And now, for a quick break. Hello, and welcome to Cause of Death. My name is Jackie Moranti. I've been studying infectious disease for 14 years in various research settings. I have a Bachelor's of Science from Colorado State University in Microbiology, Immunology, and Virology. I've worked with diseases like tuberculosis, SARS-1, and SARS-CoV-2, better known as COVID-19, and I've worked with EHV-1. It's my feeling that if we look back at the pandemics of the past, we may be able to better handle the pandemics of the future. The problem is, we have to learn our lessons first. Come along with me while I tell you about the pandemics, the epidemics, and the outbreaks, and how we never seem to learn our lesson. Now, back to the show. Travis, I'm afraid we're going to find you chopped up in our freezer, she told him candidly. Suddenly, she got an awful feeling that someone was listening to the conversation. She mouthed to Travis that she thought Jody was outside the door. At first, Travis didn't believe it, but when he tiptoed to the door and flung it open, there she was. 
Sky later said the look on Jody's face was evil. Travis ended things with Jody soon after, at least officially. Following the breakup, Jody packed up and moved from California to Mesa, Arizona, much to the dismay of Travis's friends. Her behavior there can only be described as stalking, but Travis did plenty of enabling. Jody would break into his house via the garage code keypad and the doggy door. Travis' reaction were often mixed. Sometimes he would demand that she leave. Other times he would initiate a sexual encounter with Jody. They continued to have phone sex and random liaisons. Even as Travis began dating a new woman named Lisa. As soon as Lisa started dating Travis, weird things began to happen. Someone slashed her tires. She received harassing emails from someone signing the messages as John Doe. At night, her doorbell would ring, but no one would be there when she went to answer. Travis also had his tires slashed on two separate occasions during this short relationship. Friends said Travis told them he knew it was Jody. But what he was telling his friends was very different from what was actually happening behind the scenes. Reportedly, Travis paid Jody to clean his house for extra cash. Police later produced thousands of text messages sent between the two of them during the same time. Many of them were explicit or sexual in nature. The following are text messages published by the Huffington Post. January 8th, 2008. Text from Jody to Travis. Ah, I fell asleep. But to answer your question, yes, I want to grind you. And I want to be loud. And I want to give you a nice, warm mouth hug too. January 18th, 2008. Text from Jody to Travis. My pussy is so wet. After eight months of living in Mesa, Jody moved back to California in April of 2008, but communication between her and Travis continued. April 20th, 2008. Text from Travis to Jody. I am at a nightclub right now, and it helped me come to the conclusion that you are one of the prettiest girls on the planet. April 21st, 2008. Text from Travis to Jody. Send me a naughty picture. By late May 2008, after months of toxic back and forth, Travis seemed to be actually trying to move on from Jody. He began pursuing a Mormon woman named Mimi Hall. Because of Travis's reputation as a womanizer, Mimi didn't agree to date him straight away. She made it clear that Travis needed to prove he had changed his ways and was looking for something serious. After winning a luxury vacation to Cancun, Mexico for a stellar job performance with prepaid legal, Travis invited Mimi to accompany him. They were set to leave on June 10th but the two would never make the trip. On June 9th, 2008, 
After several days of not hearing from Travis, Mimi accompanied three of Travis's friends to his home on the east side of Mesa. Inside, they found the walls and floor of his master bedroom suite covered in blood and discovered the brutalized corpse of Travis Alexander crumpled in the shower. Police began the investigation with a strong suspect, Jody Arias. Before they could make any arrests, investigators had to see if the physical evidence from the crime scene proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Jody was the perpetrator. The crime scene was gruesome. Travis's bathroom was painted red. Blood covered almost every surface, the sink, the floor, the shower, the walls, even the hallway leading to the bedroom. Investigators found pools of blood and DNA around the shower near the body and collected several hair samples from someone with long brown locks. Police also discovered a 25 caliber shell casing from a puddle of congealed blood. Downstairs in the utility room, they pulled a camera from the washing machine. It had gone through a rinse cycle, but the memory card was still intact. They sent the camera to experts to see what photos could be recovered. Meanwhile, the autopsy report of Travis's body indicated that he was killed by someone in a passionate rage. The murderer had plunged a knife into Travis's body 27 times before slitting his throat from ear to ear. The coroner also fished a 25 caliber bullet out of the right side of his forehead. The location of the blood splatter indicated he had been killed in the middle of the bathroom and then dragged back and dumped in the shower. Jody spoke with the Mesa police the night Travis's body was found and offered to help in any way she could. However, she said she had not seen Travis since April. She claimed to be on a road trip to Utah to spend time with her new love interest the night Travis was murdered. She voluntarily went to the police station on June 17th and gave the police a saliva sample and her fingerprints. She divulged curious details about her five-month relationship. With Travis, followed by the off-again and on-again sexual encounters, but told police that she last spoken to him on June 3rd. As police waited for DNA evidence to be tested and the recovery of the camera memory card, Jody reportedly posted heartfelt messages of mourning to her social media profiles, right up until the memorial service for Travis Alexander on June 26th. Little did she know, the evidence against her was mounting. Police learned Jody's grandparents reported a burglary on May 28, 2008. The only thing taken was a 25 caliber handgun, the same caliber as the bullet recovered from Travis's skull. Next, they found several holes in Jody's alibi. Jody claimed she was on a road trip to visit a new boyfriend who lived in Salt Lake City when Travis was killed. 
Yes, she had gone to Salt Lake City on June 5th to visit a man named Ryan Burns. But there was a 24-hour hole in her alibi the day before. She gave a simple explanation. Her phone had died while she was lost in the desert, and she slept in her car. There were questions about the rental car she used as well. Jody rented a white Ford Focus from Budget Rental in Redding, California, about 100 miles south of where she was living at the time. She told police she rented the car there because her brother lived in Redding, and it's where she could get the best deal. Oddly enough, she requested a vehicle that would not stand out. The trip from Redding to Salt Lake City is only about 700 miles one way. Going there and back should only put about 1,400 miles on the car. The car she rented had 2,800 miles on it after she returned it. Strangely, it was also missing the floor mats and had red stains on the seats. So, where had she gone? Police soon recovered photographs from the camera found in Travis's washing machine, and the timestamps answered this question for investigators. The pictures showed Jody and Travis posing nude in sexually provocative ways and they were all timestamped June 4th. Worse, photographs taken shortly after nudes showed that appeared to be the murder of Travis Alexander happening in real time. One moment, there were pictures of him posing in the shower, and the next, images of Travis in a bloody heap on the ground. It appeared these last photos had been taken by accident after the camera fell on the floor. At the very least, these photos proved Jody was lying about not seeing Travis since April. At most, they indicated she was present for the murder. The nail in Jody's coffin was the DNA evidence. The same day, she attended the memorial service for Travis in Southern California. Mesa police got word that Jody's DNA and a bloody fingerprint were found at the crime scene. Police gave this information to prosecutors, who moved quickly to secure an indictment of first-degree murder against Jody Arias. On July 9th, 2008, the day Jody turned 29, she was arrested. Shortly after her arrest and extradition to Mesa, Arizona on Halloween of 2008, the Maricopa County Prosecutor's Office filed a notice in court that they were seeking the death penalty in Jody's case. The physical evidence showed that Jody was involved in Travis's death. Police also discovered that she had left casual voicemails on Travis's phone after he was already dead. Travels my way. I was looking at the May calendar, duh. So I'm all confused. 
Um, but Heather and I are going to see Othello on July 1st, and we would love for you to co accompany us. Um, I don't know when Team Freedom's event is, though, but, you know, it's on the list, so we could do, um, we could do Shakespeare, Crater Lake, and the coast. So if you, make, if you can make it. If not, we'll just do the coast in uh, Crater Lake. Since there was conclusive DNA evidence proving that she was at the crime scene, her actions afterwards strongly suggested a cover-up. Prosecutors concluded this had been a premeditated murder of the most heinous kind, and they wanted Jody to pay for it with her life. Within months of the death penalty notice, Jody changed her story about what happened the night Travis died. During a jailhouse interview with Inside Edition and 48 Hours, she proclaimed she and Travis had been attacked by two masked intruders in his bathroom. A man and a woman, dressed in black ski masks and armed with guns, shot Travis. But Jody had been spared by some miracle. Jody said of the attack, quote, He pulled the trigger and nothing happened with the gun. And so I just grabbed my purse, which was on the floor at that point, and I ran down the stairs and out of there. I left Travis there. I pushed past him and his gun, and I didn't look back." Unquote. During another interview, Jody said the masked man had pulled out her wallet and taken note of her address. She claimed he threatened to hunt her down and kill her if she ever told anyone about what had happened that night. By 2011, Jody's story changed once again, this time to self-defense. After she filed a motion in court to represent herself, she tried to get several letters admitted to the evidence file that she claimed were written by Travis. The documents allegedly contained confessions from Travis that he was a pedophile, but the letters were quickly proven to be forgeries. After that, Jody no longer tried to represent herself, but she stuck to the narrative that Travis Alexander was an abusive sexual deviant who would have killed her that night if she hadn't have defended herself. It took five years for Jody Arias' trial for the murder of Travis Alexander to get underway. After jury selection was completed in December of 2012, opening arguments started on January 2nd, 2013. The prosecution and the defense trotted out all the juicy details, from pictures to explicit text messages to actual recordings of Travis and Jody having phone sex. The trial turned into a media frenzy as networks scored record ratings from their coverage of a steamy, dysfunctional romance that ended in a horrific murder. And now, for a quick break. Hello there, Gigawater gang! I'm Kina, the host of the boozy and delightfully foul-mouthed comedy podcast, Historical AF. I'm a nerdy public historian that is joined by a special guest each week to deliver funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Past topics have included the magical manhood of Russia's mad monk Rasputin, my hot take that aliens did not build the pyramids, 
Serial killers that both my parents happen to meet as children. Listen, I know what you're thinking. Kina, how do you even exist right now? Also, who was it? All right, I'll tell you. Spoiler alert, it was John Wayne Gacy and Mark Allen Smith. Anywho, we can't forget the spooky. I've covered topics ranging from the ghost of Anne Boleyn to the night marchers in Hawaii. Don't look at them, guys. If you do, you have to strip naked and you have to lay on the dirt. Dim's the rules. You can listen and subscribe to Historical AF wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And finally, you can check out the website for links to listen, sources, because citing is sexy, photos, and more at historicalafpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Now, back to the show. People traveled from all over the country to camp out in front of the courthouse during the trial. The prosecutor, Juan Martinez, was routinely mobbed by spectators vying for his autograph. The trial continued for a whopping five months. Jody Arias took the stand in her own defense for 18 days and gave shocking testimony about the pair's wild sex life and the abuse she allegedly experienced at the hands of Travis Alexander. The night of the murder, she claimed the two had taken photos of each other with Travis's new camera. They went to the shower to get a certain effect with the photos, and Travis posed for her. As the steam filled the bathroom, Jody's hands became slippery, and she dropped the camera. When he saw she dropped his new camera, Jody said Travis barreled toward her in a blind rage and body slammed her on the tile floor. She fled to the closet, where she remembered he kept a gun, then shot him in self-defense. In a teary-eyed testimony, she said she couldn't remember anything else after that, meaning she had no recollection of stabbing him almost 30 times, slitting his throat, or covering up the evidence in the case. The jury didn't find Jody's testimony convincing. On May 8th of 2013, after two days of deliberation, they found Jody guilty of first-degree murder. Next, the jury would have to decide if she would get the death penalty or life in prison. Jody previously told reporters she would rather die than get life in prison. Quote, I said years ago that I'd rather get death than life. And that still is true today. I believe death is the ultimate freedom. So I'd rather just have my freedom as soon as I can get it. Unquote. Jody Arias to Phoenix Television Station, KSAZ. After the jury found her guilty, she changed her tune and pleaded for life in prison. Unfortunately for Jody, the sentencing phase proved to be less decisive than the initial verdict. The jury remained hopelessly deadlocked on the death penalty issue, and the judge was forced to declare a mistrial. A second jury would have to hear the evidence in the case and decide on sentencing. Beginning in March of 2015, a full two years after her first trial, a second jury sat in court for almost a month, hearing the evidence in Jody's case 
before once again going into deliberation to decide her fate. But once again, this jury could not agree whether she should live or die. On April 13th, 2015, the judge sentenced Jody Arias to life in prison for the murder of Travis Alexander. She is currently serving her sentence at Arizona State Prison Complex, Perryville. At the time of this recording, she is 39 years old. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.